Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 3rd, 2013. It's Monday, but we're going to pretend instead of just Monday. It's Monday, Monday, Monday. That's something you don't ever hear here, and I don't think a lot of people do monster trucks on Mondays. Usually it's Friday, Friday, Friday. But... Um, Due to what I will continue to call a logistical pain in my ass, just as a good-natured rib of the person who's responsible for it, uh, Friday did not end up being a listener call-in show. I instead ran episode four of the Women of Prepping series, and um, I think it was a great interview, and I think a lot of people really loved it, but you did miss out on Friday, 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 so we're going to do it on Monday. These are your calls. You pick up the phone and you mash some numbers, or in, in this day and age, most of the time you touch some numbers on a touch screen. And the numbers you want to touch are 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. For those of you don't, for those of you that don't like to spell it out, the actual number there is 866-658-4465. 866-658-4465. But, uh, seems like people remember the think line easier. Again, 866-65-THINK. If you pick up your phone, you call in right now, you won't get anything but an answering machine because this is a pre-recorded podcast. It's not a live call-in show. But leave me your message, your uh, question, your comment, your suggestion, whatever it is. Try to do it in two minutes or less. If you're making a point or asking a question, do it first and then give details. It'll work out a lot better for you. I promise you'll be more likely to get on the air. And then you know, tune in for the next week or two or three, I would say, at the most, and wait to see if your call gets answered. If it doesn't, consider calling it in. Usually about three weeks out, the call's atrophy, and they, they don't really get handled. So I pick random spots from the newest to the oldest to the beginning to the middle to the end of the last couple of weeks' calls usually to try to make it more democratic as I screen the call. Calls. Uh, where I start from has a lot to do with where I end up on, as well as the quality of the calls and whether I can hear them or not. Uh, do not call from the back of a uh, a back of um, a motorcycle or while running a weed eater, because uh, if you do that, it's going to be uh, really hard for me to put you on the air and try to get a good cell symbol. I had a call today from a guy I know. And I forwarded his own call back to him just because I couldn't hear what he was saying. It was just bad cell signal. That's something you can only do so much with because there's nobody on the other end of the line to tell you. But look to see if you have a couple bars before you do. And uh, maybe I'll be able to get your call on the air. Before I take your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you. Uh, Monday through Friday, five days a week for about an hour to two hours a day. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, how about investing in copper? Jacketed lead is the uh, third option in precious metal investing. We actually have a, um, a question today about copper and lead as investments, but we'll handle that when we get to it. Let me just put it to you this way. There is a, a triangle when it comes to gun ownership and gun effectiveness. You have to be trained and know what you're doing so you can actually use the gun. You have to have a gun, because if you know how to use a gun and you have ammo but no gun, you can try to throw rounds at people. It doesn't work really well. And uh, that, so you got to have the gun, and then you got to have ammo, because if you have the training and the gun and no ammo, then maybe you can beat them with the gun if they're trying to kill you with a gun of their own. You have an overpriced club. Those three have to go together, and we can handle the gun through a single purchase if we just want one or a couple purchases if we want a couple. We can handle the training by going to school for it and then training on our own on an ongoing basis. And then we have those two taken care of. 
But the ammo is the expendable part. The training lasts. You know, you should always take refresher training and things like that, but the training lasts. The gun lasts. I mean, I have guns from my grandfather, and I'll, they'll probably go to my grandchildren someday. Um, but ammo, you fire it, it's gone. That's why you have to have a good supply of it. One of the best places you'll find to keep your supply up in a heavy stock is at BulkAmmo.com. Check them out today. Next up, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. I call them the original sponsor because they were the first people to ever sponsor the show. Uh, they were the ones that came to us and said, hey, we want to sponsor the show. And we went, uh, okay, well, we're not really ready to do that yet. And uh, I don't know if I have enough listeners yet. And they said, no, we want to do it. I said, well, give me a couple of months. Let me build the audience a bit more and put together a program for this. And uh, they were still ready to go when I was. And they became the original Survival Podcast sponsor. They've now been with us about four and a half years. Four and a half years in the podcasting world is a lifetime. Most podcasts don't last four and a half years. Certainly most uh, sponsorships of podcasts don't run that long. And I look forward to them, to them being with us for a long time. And they have everything for your prepping needs you can imagine, from the tactical to the practical and everything in between. And they have a discount buyer's program. It sells for $49. They sell it every day to people who buy it because it's a great deal. And if you're a member of my support brigade, you get it for free. Uh, that's real support from a real sponsor. Check them out today. Uh, the best way to find their website actually is prepared.pro. Another one of those things that is easy to remember, prepared.pro. Check them out today. The best way to visit Bulk Ammo, Survival, uh, Safe Castle Royal, and all of our sponsors would really be to go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banner in the right-hand margin. Then you know you're dealing with one of the actual sponsors, not a brand pirate. Remember, sponsorship at TSP isn't something you just show up and get. You have to apply as a sponsor. Yes, we do turn people down. And those who have been around for a while know that, yes, we fire sponsors. We really do. Right. It's not just more. In the words of Paul Wheaton, no, it's not just marketing. Um, it's it's true. We really do. We protect our audience, and uh, we believe that sponsorship is not about selling ad space. It's about a true endorsement. All of the sponsors carry my true endorsement. Last but not least, do, do consider joining the member support brigade. You'll get great discounts to Bulk Ammo. You'll get discounts to Safe Castle Royal. You'll get discounts to most of our other sponsors. And about 30 other supporting vendors will give you discounts. If you're buying stuff in the self-reliance world, you know what? You're going to get your money back many times over every year. 50 bucks a year, and then there's a military discount that will save you even more money. Remember, you can pay by cash, check, money order, or silver. Just go to the members page, and at the bottom you'll see you can sign up using your credit card or with PayPal. Uh, in fact, you have to use PayPal if you're using your credit card because I don't take credit cards. Uh, and the other way is to pay by mail, and there's an option for that there. I had a question that didn't make it on the air because the guy went on and on and on and on and asked the same questions like three times over. But I will answer his question here because it's a pertinent time to do it. Uh, he said, if you pay by silver, is it a better deal than the military discount? And the answer is it don't matter. Because if you pay by silver and you're in the military and you write the discount code that you get for me on the form and get the military discount, obviously we can't fractionalize silver very well through the mail. So what I do is I just give you the discount in time. <laughs> So there's a military discount that's pretty good, and we just take the percentage that would be discounted, and we just add it to your membership so you get more months. So it's a better deal all around if you get the service discount. With that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, and let's take your first call. Hey, Jack Lee from New York calling. Love the show. I just have a quick question about the show you had recently about the permaculture design. Um... When you reference the aquaponics system, you mentioned it would be some 55-gallon drums 
um, being used, uh, I guess, for the fish there. My question is, is during the a, a, a barrel-based aquaponics system like that, uh, if it's outdoors, wouldn't what, wouldn't the uh, heat of Texas cause a problem for the fish there? Uh, in such a small drum, I don't know. I don't know if there's uh, fish that would survive that temperature. I'm not really sure. I'm not too familiar with aquaponics. But I just figured I'd throw the question out there for those of us that uh, may live in a hotter climate. If a, if a barrel system or a small container system is feasible, because I can imagine once that's, that's in the sun, that water is going to get awfully hot. Well, thanks a lot, Jack. I do love the show. Take care now. Bye-bye. Well, it's actually a completely valid concern, and I probably would never do an outdoor barrel ponics style system, something, you know, that is completely based in, uh, in barrels. So it's a barrel, uh, fish tank, barrel grow beds and stuff like that. That's, that's not what we're doing at all. Uh, the tanks themselves that will hold the majority of the water are two, uh, galvanized stock tanks. Uh, one buried over a foot in the ground and then piled up with dirt uh, around them and uh, the, the so that it's almost completely uh, earth earthen sheltered and then the second one was simply leveled and then we put an earth berm around it which will cover 70% of its height when I'm done kind of messing around with it uh, we'll of course plant into those earth mounds which will be nice soft dirt and good stuff to grow and the growing of various herbs and other things in those mounds will stabilize them so they don't erode so that's what we're doing and I have a whole video um on the, the plan for that garden, and it kind of explains all that, and it would make it more clear. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Uh, the system we're going to use, 55-gallon barrels cut in half for the grow beds, uh, just because it's a nice, convenient, low-cost, low-input method of building those, and they're, you know, they're kind of perfect for the situation. So there will be uh, four 55-gallon drums in the system, actually five, because one will be left intact. Uh, but those will be cut in half, filled with gravel, and used to grow things in. The actual water volume is much larger. You're looking at each one of those tanks can handle about 470 gallons of water. So call it 450 because you won't fill them right to the brim except when you want to overflow them on purpose. Um, and then you're looking at about 900 gallons of water in the system, plus what the grow beds have at any one time, and plus what the uh, the dumping barrel has. So there'll be another 55-gallon barrel, which is where the water will be pumped to, and there'll be a siphon system in that barrel to once it reaches a certain level, it will kick on a siphon and dump about 25, 30 gallons of water into the grow beds and then begin the cycle all over again, pulling from the lower pond. Uh, so these are basically in-ground ponds, which is the reason I went ahead and answered this question instead of just basically finding you and tracking you, throwing you an email, say, hey, look at the video. Is it's actually an extremely valid concern when you're trying to do outdoor aquaponics in a climate where you get temperatures. You know, the tropics are one thing, but a lot of times the tropics you're looking at temperatures in the 90-degree range, um, whereas when you look at uh, a place like Texas, you're looking at days that are 110 degrees, and that's that's a big difference. And it's also in the tropics, you have that kind of a constant temperature, things sort of equalize, normalize out, where Texas, you have this big heat spike in the summer, and it gets cold in the winter, and it's a little bit more hard to maintain things and keep kind of a, a somewhat steady uh 
fluctuation or minimize the fluctuations in your water because one thing that can really harm your system, not just the fish either, could shock the plants, it's quick swings in the temperature. It's one thing for the water temperature to get very warm. It's another thing for it to go from, you know, very cool to very warm very, very fast. That can cause shock to roots and fish. So one of the ways we can mediate that is a lot of water. So instead of having a system with, you know, 50 gallons of water or 100 gallons of water, a system with 900 gallons of water in it, there's a lot more effort needed to move the temperature of that much water. And uh, so that would be uh, one area that, that you could mediate things, just a lot of water. And two, by earth sheltering the pond, you get an earth contact, uh, you're going to get a much greater mediation in temperature in an aquaponics system. So we're going to give it a try. I've never been huge on aquaponics. Because um, I think it does take a lot of kind of hands-on attention. We're going to see how it works out. If nothing else, it'll become a nutrient cycle. So it, it may end up being something we're not growing tilapia for food. I may be throwing simple goldfish in there and using it for the fertility uh, that it generates for the plants. Uh, we'll see. You know, we'll just see as we go. Anyway, great call. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Chris from New Hampshire. Question. What are your thoughts on investing in copper and lead, bulk copper and lead. And here's the reason I ask. Um, I heard not too long ago this person saying that his, his, the way he invests in precious metals, he invests in uh, copper, lead, and brass. Obviously, you know, he's investing in ammunition, and that's a good idea. And I love to show you this on silver, but here's my take on it. Um, if there isn't uh, much more to this ammo shortage, and there's a big underground market for... Um, ammunition manufacturing, would it be a good investment with the price of um, even brass or lead or copper spike? And if it does, would that be a good investment? Uh, just my thoughts. I uh, love the show. Enjoy everything you do. Have a good day, and God bless. I have to answer that with, and it depends. If you're storing copper and lead because you have the ability to produce your own ammunition with them, and you're storing them as a raw material for reloading, I'd say it makes some sense. But with the price of components, now that the whole complete catastrophe, overboard, you know, nut job, everybody freaked out and bought everything they could, uh, is kind of past us and we can buy components again fairly easily, it probably makes sense for that purpose to store actual components. And if you are playing it for a monetary gain, the components, complete components, would be worth more than the raw material. Uh, so they, I, I would lead, lead toward, if you're even thinking about it from an ammo perspective, as components uh, rather than the raw material. And I would also say that if you're going to store one of those that more than copper lead – Because casting bullets is easy, making copper jackets for them and bonding it together the way the ammo manufacturers do is not generally something you can just knock out in a day and uh, sit there and knock a spruce plate over and, and start dropping, uh, dropping them out. There's actually a cool way to make expanding lead bullets that, um, that works really well without a jacket, I'll give you right now. And what you want to do is you want it to make two different uh, melted pots of lead And in one pot, you want to melt pure lead with no block tin or no wheel weights or anything like that in it. Uh, so it's a soft lead. And in the other uh, container, you want to melt uh, very hard cast lead. 
Uh, wheel weights is a great, just wheel weights. Maybe add even a little bit of block tin on top of that and what have you and harden your lead. And then you need to make a dipper. And you need to make a dipper. A lot of times what people use is a, just a cut piece of a brass shell case. And you can play around with it a little bit till you figure out where you're getting what you want it to be. And you want it to fill up about one third of the mold. Uh, Uh, with, uh, with, with, uh, actually, what you want to do is you want to make the uh, dipper, uh, and you want to fill up about, um, two thirds of the mold, and you're going to use that dipper to measure your, your soft lead, and you're going to put it into your mold first, because we usually cast the bullet upside down, so that the base is what gets filled up last. And then you're going to fill the last one third of your mold with the hardened lead, and you're going to do it one right after the other, cold, you know, drop in that soft lead, drop in that hard lead, and they will fuse together. And when you fire that, it acts not like a jacketed round, but almost in a way kind of like a nozzler partition. That hard cast piece of lead in the rear uh, stays intact and drives that mushrooming uh, soft lead through. So there's a little tip to make an expanding bullet that holds together very well by casting lead. But the problem with storing bulk lead is lead sells for about a dollar a pound. Now, let's say that lead, and if you're thinking of an just a pure investment standpoint, now let's say that lead goes up in price 100% from a dollar a pound that it is today to $2 a pound tomorrow. And let's say you're holding a 1,000 pounds of lead. Well, now you've made a $1,000 profit. But how much space is a 1,000 pounds of lead going to take up? It's such a low price per pound that it's hard to store in bulk. Copper, not as bad. Uh, copper's going about 313, 335, something like that, a pound right now. I think that the day we see copper priced in ounces is not forever into the future. I think that it's very possible that copper will become a poor man's silver uh, at some point in the future. Um, I, I can see copper selling for, um, you know, I don't know about next week or next month, but let's say 10, 20 years into the future. I can see copper selling for in excess of $16 a pound. Uh, that's a dollar an ounce. It's a dollar an ounce. It, it starts to really get into the monetization scheme. Copper has a long history of use in monetization. Um, and I, I can see that being valuable in some way someday. And I think that the return is there because you're doing it three times the price. Uh, per pound of copper over lead. Copper has a lot more utility. Lead is being used less and less uh, by everything except ammunition manufacturers. Uh, lead's kind of gotten a bad rap because it does do some harmful things to the environment. So uh, it's just not used as heavily as it, as it has been historically. Um, so I don't know that I would store either one in too much bulk, but if you wanted to have or you had easy access to either one on the cheap or for free from scavenging, uh, it might not be bad to build up a stockpile and wait for a future time to, uh, to cash them in at the good old-fashioned junkyard. But if you're looking at it from an ammo play, I would store components or I would store lead and I would have the ability to cast lead before I started storing too much of it because it's, uh, it's heavy and it uh, takes up a lot of space for a very low amount of money. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Eric from the Cornfields of Indiana. My question is, should we be taught and trained in the Truvium? I know there's a million conspiracy theories out there. It's obvious from the work of Charlotte Iserby and John Taylor Gatto that our miseducation system only teaches fact retention and regurgitation 
based on the Prussian model of industrial training, which was invented for the industrial age. Well, without a doubt, most of our industry has been shipped overseas, yet we still teach this method to our students' detriment. I'm not expecting a myth-busting on all conspiracies, but this seems pretty pertinent and important. What are your thoughts? Thanks, Jack. You know, the, the trivium is actually something that a lot of conspiracy theorists uh, kind of latch onto, and I really wish they wouldn't because it discredits it. Uh, and I don't mean the conspiracy theorists that say, you know, there's just something not right about this issue. Or, you know, I have questions about this. 9-11 is a perfect example. Do I think that the conspiracy theorists have it all right? No. And do I think some of the people on that conspiracy theory are way out in left field with much foil wrapped around the brain? Uh, yes. Do I believe the official story? Uh, no. 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 I don't believe the marketing, okay? I, I know there's some questions. So that's, that, that, there's, there's different le levels, I guess, of a conspiracy theorist. My first question to somebody who says, well, I'm a logical, rational person and I believe in these conspiracies is, can you tell me one you don't believe in? And if they can tell me one, like, you know, this has got nothing behind it, this is not, then I tend to like go, yeah, okay, I can take this person at their word. But if they're a person that's like, well, uh, yeah, sure. And you say, well, what one? And they don't have any. It's like, well, what about JFK? Yep. And, and I believe everything about it too. Uh, what about the Oklahoma City Bomb? Yep. You know, and I'll tell you that both of those I have questions about too. But I don't necessarily believe the 100% conspiracy theory behind them. And when people like that, latch on to something, it makes it something that people generally don't really take seriously. And it's a shame with the trivium. So what is the trivium? Well, in academia, it's what many consider an archaic, outdated, pointless method of educating people. Uh, because it was used in medieval universities, like during the Dark Ages and stuff like that. And gee, we must have it better today. But as the caller stated, what we have today is based on a Prussian system designed to create conformity. Uh, the Prussian system of education was, it's not just for industry, though. I know that the caller pointed that out and said, well, you know, we've already exported all the industry, so what's the point? It, the, the, the Prussian education system is designed to make people show up on time, sit down and shut up and do what the hell they're told to do, and not question authority. That works in offices and blue-collar jobs and white-collar jobs alike. And it also works very well for controlling a population with a two-party political system full of a bunch of ass clowns pretending to argue with each other while 90% of the time they have the same agendas and goals and do the same things and they keep us divided. It's very good for that, the, the Prussian system, because it teaches conformity. It teaches respect of authority. It teaches not to question things once they're established as fact by someone who has more power than you do. And, and that's what that system gives you. It gives you programmed units that do what the hell they're told. The trivium, on the other hand, is a problem for authority. And it's the real reason it's not the way we base our education system. It has nothing to do with conspiracy theorists. It's just simply, if you're in power, you'd like to stay there. And the best way you can do that is to keep all the people beneath you educated enough to run the machine, but not educated enough to understand it, and certainly not educated enough to question it. So what is the trivium? The trivium is based on three things, okay? Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. 
And I want to start with the last one because it's the one that we've ruined because it's, that's just political rhetoric. It's just left wing rhetoric. It's just right wing rhetoric. And all the people saying that should probably be collectively smacked in the face with a large fish, preferably something like a salmon that's about half frozen, swung by a large man in the face because they don't know what the word means. Rhetoric is the thing as it is communicated. So when you listen to anybody articulate an idea or a concept and, and you can fully understand, even if you don't agree, you can fully comprehend what they're saying and where they're coming from. If you can do, if you can do that based on what they've said, they've successfully utilized rhetoric to communicate the idea. The other two are logic and grammar. So grammar is the thing as it is symbolized. So I can have a cup. And in a very ancient uh, script picto language, I might actually explain cup with a picture that looks like a cup. The problem is a cup doesn't really look like a cup to me. If I draw it, you might not be sure what the hell it is. So you had to be somewhat artistic to be able to draw a picture so universally seen as a cup. So pictograms were invented that were shorthand for these images that became the basis of language. And then we ended up with alphabets like the Greco-Roman alphabet that we use today. And cup is symbolized with a combination of three simple characters, C-U-P. And everybody knows that means cup. It doesn't mean what you think it means if you're thinking with a seventh grade mind right now and laughing. He said be right? It's not that, right? It's a cup. So now when I write cup and you write cup and your brother writes cup and your sister writes cup, even though our, our ability to print, our handwriting styles might be a little bit different, unless you're a really sloppy writer, everybody knows what it means. So that's grammar. And with a keyboard, we get by all of that, and even your crappy handwriters communicate, this is a cup. Okay, uh, And grammar is used to symbolize that. Logic is concerned with the thing as it is known. How do I know the cup? What do I see in the cup? Is it just a vessel to hold my coffee, or does it have other purposes? How was it created? How might I improve it? So I could examine the cup as a piece of technology. And in all things that we're doing, we should have the ability to symbolize them so we can communicate them to others in print and leave a record of them so that they, they can be used to further knowledge. We should have the logic to evolve the concept and ideas, and we should be versed in logic so that when we look at something, we can say, there's a better way to do this. Gee, that's in a song I've heard before. Anyway, there's a better way to do this. Or maybe this can be put together with another thing, and those two together can be combined to be more efficient. That's logic. Rhetoric is my ability to say to you, hey, this cup can also be used to hold marbles. right? And for you to understand why the cup might be a good place to hold marbles. And this is how traditional education was up until the Prussian system. It was about how well can you read, interpret, and, and, and write so that others can then take that record. How well can you examine things with logic and what type of rhetoric can you use in communicating it to others, whether it be verbal or written using the first peg, which is grammar. And that is a very, very dangerous way to teach people for those in power because people might start saying why the hell are we eating food that's been sprayed with poison see and then they might say using logic maybe there's a better way to do this stop poisoning us please 
And then maybe when please doesn't work, they go, okay, please didn't work. Maybe we're going to demand it. Maybe we're going to change it by force if necessary. This is what happens when a, when a society is educated based on the concept of the trivium. Everything is questioned and everything is evolved and progress comes faster. But if you're in control, those are all things you don't want. There's not a teacher out there today that really wants what they're teaching to change. If you're a teacher, you might be pissed at me, but I'm sorry. If you've been teaching, uh, let's say, science for 20 years, you don't want the core curriculum to change. But there's certain things that change in science that cause that core curriculum to change. Everything we thought we knew about something becomes turned on its head when somebody makes a new discovery in quantum physics. And I know that generally doesn't affect science as it's being taught in the fifth grade. But it could if we were teaching children grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Because maybe they would already be ready to start discussing the higher concepts of science in the fifth grade. And maybe then they would be interested in simple, stupid things like the difference between potential and kinetic energy. See, maybe they would be interested if they understood how they applied. And that's the big thing with the trivium. You very quickly roll into the world of how does this matter? Is this relevant? Does it apply? And the other reason people in charge don't like that is sometimes the answer is no. Doesn't apply. I don't need to know this. I don't need to be messing with this, at least right now. And that creates students to go, we don't want this anymore. We want that instead. We want to evolve the education system. We want to evolve society. That's what the trivium leads to. And it's a big part of what brought a, an age of knowledge out of the dark ages was this concept of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So should we be taught it? Of course we should. Will they do it? Probably not. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. Brian here from northern Illinois. And I uh, just was <clears throat> taking my 50-mile commute, that may sound familiar to you, and was listening to NPR. And they were running a story about uh, investing in bulk buying. So uh, your savings account isn't going to make any money, and half your investments probably won't either. But uh, you will definitely get a return on investment by going to uh, Costco or whatever and buying a bunch of garbage bags and stuff like that. So it's nice to see that even uh, people that you wouldn't normally think about it are kind of getting into the uh, maybe the prepared investment mindset, uh, even if it's by uh, the false flag of investment, maybe. False flag is probably a bad term. Either way, uh, it was on NPR Thursday, the end of May, uh, 29th or whatever it is, and the segment was called Dollar for Dollar, if you want to look it up. Bye. Well, it's good to hear, and, you know, this is a place where, you know, you'd say you'd think you wouldn't hear that, but I, I don't find that to really be the case. I think that many people that would classify themselves as liberals and progressive have two real problems. One, they have a problem with people having a right to defend themselves and being armed. And two, they have a problem with people actually profiting from their efforts. If we could just get past those two things, most of those people are actually very intelligent, logical people that could do a lot for society if they weren't fighting with people that are like, you know what, I do have a right to defend myself and I do have a right to my property, especially the property that I've earned and I'd like you to stop redistributing my wealth. So I actually don't find it that um, unusual 
that people from, let's say, a left-wing perspective would start turning toward the prepping mindset. A lot of those folks, maybe for the not, I wouldn't say the wrong reason, but maybe for not quite the same reasons we are, are, are tuned into the fact that we have a lot of problems as well. And there's certain issues from a prepping standpoint that are completely universal and totally without regard to politics. If your house burns down, you got a problem whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. If there's a pandemic, trust me, it'll kill Democrats and Republicans equally. You will not have a pandemic that you know wipes out all Republicans or wipes out all Democrats, though some very twisted people on both sides of the political spectrum might actually think that would be a good thing because they're very sick, twisted people. Uh, so you're not going to have those types of occurrences th that are uniquely affecting only one segment of political society, so to speak. So it stands to reason that this would be universal. But there's another thing that's going on. People are more and more beginning to realize a couple of things. The stock market isn't really a great, safe place to be investing your money. Uh, it's up and down and sideways and back. And it, 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 people are getting slaughtered there. And they're just starting to go, I'm, you know, maybe I'll still have my 401k or whatever, but I'm not comfortable putting all my money in there. And then they're also figuring out debt sucks. You know, you have a couple of recessions and people start to figure out that debt sucks, so they start paying off their debt. So now they're not throwing every bit, of, every penny into the mutual funds the way Dave Ramsey tells you after you have your 90-day supply of, uh, of cash on hand. They're not doing it all going into mutual funds anymore, and they're they're not, um, in, you know, they're not spending it on Mastercard and Visa payments because they've paid those off, and this this pesky stuff called cash starts to accumulate. And they start to say, well, what the heck do I do with it? And they say, well, put it in the bank. And they say, well, I don't really think it's worth having my money in the bank for one-third of 1% when inflation's so much worse. And they say, well, put it in the stock market. And you go, I got some money in there. I'm not putting it, I'm not putting it all at risk anymore. And they say, well, what do I do with it? Well, what do you buy? Well, I always buy toilet paper. Well, buy a crap ton of toilet paper then. It's going to cost more next year. It lasts forever. So why not buy that? Why not buy other items in bulk that never go bad? You know, soaps and shampoos are perfect examples of things that never go bad. Uh, then they start to say, well, maybe it does work with food if I don't go overboard. And all of a sudden, you're into prepping. And you're into prepping via stockpiling. And I think that is a, a way that a lot of people actually do come to this out of mainstream thinking that would not call themselves a survivalist or even a prepper. And I think that's just going to become more and more prevalent in society. And there's a reality. That reality is this is nothing new. And up until about... The first decade after World War II, this is what the majority of Americans did. Nobody went to the store three times a week in 1950. I'm telling you, they didn't. I'm telling you, where I grew up, they didn't do it in the 80s. What people were doing in the 80s. Nobody you know, had dads swing by the supermarket every night on the way home from work. That wasn't done. Shopping was something that was done once every week, usually once every two weeks. And for people that lived a little bit out in the country, it was something you did kind of once a month. You made a supply run. It was this consumer age and this concept that that type of thinking was for poor people, which doesn't make any sense at all when you really think about it, considering that the wealthy person in 1950 did this to a higher level than a poor person because they could afford to. But somehow we got sold on that bullshit. Somehow we got sold on this mentality that it's an on-demand world and you should have whatever you want whenever you want it. And that came with credit card debt and everything else, but it also came with this lack of a desire to actually build a deep pantry. You know, where there's still people that live in the country that don't call themselves preppers, but boy, are they proud of the fact that they canned, you know, 15 cases of, of tomatoes last year. And I'll tell you, I got a bunch of tomatoes in there. Here's a jar, right? And that's the remnant of that. 
And it used to be that people would just like, that was like no big deal, except in, unless you were the one that canned the most, right? And just, it's just human nature that since we have logic and reason and rhetoric and grammar, that these ideas cannot be lost because the trivium still exists as a concept. And it is the way people think, right? I'm tying it back into the last segment a little bit. It is the way people think. People, what is the first thing you do when you want to know something in this day and age? You usually probably go online. Before you went online, you pulled out an encyclopedia. Remember encyclopedias? I do. I remember doing reports for school with encyclopedias that were 20 years old because that's what we had. Um, you know, and then going to the school library after, after class so I could use a more updated encyclopedia it was 15 years old and a lot of the stuff and reports being outdated. Right, so, but today we don't have the encyclopedia that they try to sell you a new series of every other year. We have the internet. So the first thing you do when you have a question is you go go to Google and you look it up. And what are you using? Grammar, because you're reading, right? And then once you you have that, then you apply logic to it and go, does this person seem like they make sense to me or not, or is this person an idiot? This is some crazy guy in a car screaming at people, uh, or is the uh, actual level-headed guy doing a podcast, right? That's when you, when you found me. And then you're using that logic, and then rhetoric will be the process by which you explain it to others. right? So um, with that being the case, when people get into a position today where they're like, well, what do I do with their, my money? They, they, they start saying you know, alternative investments and things like that. And sooner or later, they come across these ideas that were just lost, We resurrect them. And that's what's going on there. Anyway, good call. Uh, thanks for letting us know. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Racer038 on the forums. I've been around uh, listening to you since May of 2009 when you were on uh, LewRockwell.com. I've uh, been listening to you ever since then. Uh, by the way, I missed the uh, rants that you would have uh, in the car when uh, people would cut you off. Anyway... Uh, my question I have, I would like your opinion on the use of suburban runoff in water catchment systems for backyard gardens. Details. I've got about a 5,000 square foot area that I'm developing for a garden food production area. I have a, uh, we live in a rural subdivision. We're on city water with septic system. Uh, above me, upgrade, is about four to seven acres of runoff. Uh, from uh, landscapes similar to mine uh, in this uh, in this subdivision, the culvert is adjacent to my house, and during times of gully washers, the water will run diagonally across the 5,000 square foot plot. Uh, my neighbors uh, all use lawn chemical services. Uh, they all have septic systems. They all are above grade uh, to my house. As far as I know, there's no problems with any of their uh, their uh, specific use of chemicals or with uh, their septic systems. I have no reason to think there's anything horrible uh, coming across my property other than just the normal poisons that they're throwing on their yards. So the question is, I'm just wondering if I should try to use this water. Um, You know, and this would be up to 20 times a year that the water would be high enough that it would uh, come onto my uh, 5,000 square foot area. Or should I avoid it by routing the water around, avoiding any woody beds or mini swells that I'm planning on putting in? 
Thanks so much for everything that you do. Look forward to your answer. Bye. Um, so this is one of those ones where you're like, ah, I really don't like this, but yet you, you also have to kind of tamper with some logic and, and, and reason there and determine how, how big the risk really is. So you have all these neighbors having these chemical companies spray their lawns. The good news about that is generally these chem lawn companies are pretty good about following procedure. And that means they tend not to overuse these chemicals because it's a direct cost to them. So they're trying to maintain a proper profit margin, and this is where profit actually helps us in more than one way. The fact that that company is concerned with profit means that they're probably going to apply all the chemicals at the recommended rates uh, and the recommended amounts and the recommended frequency. And why is that important? Because that's going to keep most of it where it belongs in your neighbor's freaking lawn instead of running off down towards you. And you're going to get a lot more runoff of that water, a lot more of it than you think is coming more off of hard surface than soft surface. And I know in every single situation that I've seen Jeff Lawton design a property, if he can grab hard surface runoff off of a road, he does it. He doesn't go, gee, I'm worried there might be something in that water. Uh, and you got to trust nature, that nature knows what to do with and how to break down this stuff. I certainly wouldn't use their grass kip clippings as compost, but I think that the concern with anything coming into your property from their runoff is largely mitigated because it's being professionally applied. And I'm telling you, I know some people are like, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Well, it does because, again, these companies want to make a profit. That is their goal, and they do not want to use more of this stuff than they have to. And most of this stuff, what it does, it's, and this is why there's the, the herbicides in particular are very persistent, is they get bound up in that system very well. They, they kind of leech, latch on and into that system. And the one thing that actually breaks them down is UV exposure. So the stuff that's most susceptible to runoff is the stuff that's breaking down the fastest. You're just not going to get a tremendous amount of that runoff. So I would go ahead and use it, and I would maybe, you know, pay attention. And if you start to see some things that look a little off, maybe, you know, don't do it so much. And maybe if you have any control over when you're harvesting this runoff, if you know that everybody sprays their lawn in May... Maybe you divert the water in May and use it in you know August when you get your end of summer rains. I, I really don't know. Um, this isn't a question I've had before. I haven't had to think much about it before. But I can tell you, I think the concern is largely, again, mitigated by proper application and the nature of these chemicals to stay mostly bound up in these systems. And if you don't see, like, I mean, because here's another way to look at it, right? So... Um, in, when I lived in Arlington, I had a neighbor who had the Chemlon thing going on all the time. And he was a little upgrade for me now that I think about it. And you could see right where he had his perfect grass. And I had like my weed infested yard that I loved because it was so low maintenance. I never had to do any, uh, any real work on it. And it just kind of rocked on. I never watered it and, and, and like, it, it, you know, it kept the dirt down, but there was dandelions or anything. Well, when he had his Chemlon guys come, and spray his yard, and he was so proud of his beautiful Bermuda grass. Uh, or is, is that what he had? I don't remember what he had, but his turf grass, you know, so beautiful. And, um, you know, I just, my weeds didn't start dying. 
So that gives me a lot of encouragement as well that, you know, you don't see that the person, like you, when you have somebody with two treated lawns on both sides, you don't notice the lawn in the middle losing a lot of its dandelions and things like that. So, uh, and my backyard was just completely riddled with it. And come to think of it, my other back neighbor, uh, had the, the chem lawn thing going on too. So the fact that, that, these people surrounded me and it didn't really affect the weeds on my property tells me that the water coming from their property might have been bringing in a little bit of it, but not a tremendous amount of it. Because again, the whole point is so that stuff to bind up in the soil and, and maintain the area where it's put. Now, when you get a clown doing it for themselves and they're doing it in excess and they're not following recommended rec rec uh, recommendations, then they're more likely to create a runoff issue. Now, I'm not saying that it's good and okay and healthy for all of these lawns to be treated like this, because the one thing that's going to run off, uh, it, it won't do you a lot of harm, but it does a lot of harm to our groundwater, is fertilizer. The, fer the fertilizer, the chemical fertilizers, are a lot more likely to be part of that runoff, but diluted and, and spread across your land, which is being done organically, it's probably not going to be an issue. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew from West Michigan Calling. I was calling in regards to a listener call-in show where a woman had asked how to go about the financial advisor role. Um, my question was, is my wife and I both have company-sponsored 401ks that use a certain company, whether it be an ING or uh, Merrill Lynch, and you were talking about the questions to ask, and if they answered them wrong, it was next. How do you go about doing that when you can't switch the company? Um, you know, I can't just say, well, I don't like Merrill Lynch, I'm going to go to IMG, or, you know, you have dedicated reps. Um, how can you go about protecting yourself when you get one of these people that are, as you said, um, personal salespeople, you know, they just go to the course and say they're a financial advisor because they went to some course from the company. Uh, should you answer that? That'd be great. Keep the good work. Love the show. Thanks. Bye. Well, the simple answer is you don't. It's why I'm not in love with 401ks. Um, I believe that the only way you would ever get me if I ever found myself back in the prison of employment again of uh, investing in a 401k would have to work like this. If my employer matched dollar for dollar up to 5%, I might really consider doing a 5% contribution. And the reason is I will immediately get a 100% return on my investment. And if there's a reasonably conservative, somewhat safe uh, uh, option in that plan, I might choose that and just take a 100% return for what it is. And you wouldn't get me to put a penny over the 5%. If they did that up to 10%, I might not even go up to 10%, though, because I might rather take the other 5% into something like if I want it for retirement and I want it tax-deferred into a Roth IRA where I have complete control like you're talking about. This is the issue with 401ks. It doesn't matter who your plan administrator is. It doesn't matter who they dress up in a monkey suit and send out. Um, to your home uh, to do this. It, it really doesn't because the plan is the plan is the plan. And the plan's going to have five or six or, if you're lucky, 12 options in it. You're going to have to pick what's there. The only thing you can do inside those investments is to look very carefully at all of the options, which won't take long because there's not many of them, and pick the ones that work best for you. What you generally do have is a fairly decent fund that will follow the stock market index fairly well. And you'll generally have something that's at least along the lines of a bond fund. They used to have just plain old money market style cash funds in them. And they've slowly eradicated those and replaced them with funds that largely invest in U.S. bonds. 
U.S. bonds are the closest thing to a safe haven these plans have now. So one thing you usually can do is move money inside there, and this requires you to pay attention. And at some point say, well, this market's had a long enough rally, it's probably going to go into a retraction, and go ahead and move your money in the account over to you know the closest thing to a cash equivalent that they have. There's some concerns there, though. One is in some plans, just because you said do it doesn't mean it happened very fast. Sometimes it takes up to 30 days in some plans for that money to move. And that's a little bit harder to uh, to really know, hey, man, this thing's going to start crumbling. I'm going to start uh, you know, making this, this thing happen right away. Uh, but those plans are pretty rare, but they're probably going to become more common. This is, again, this is what I like about 401ks. People just change rules. You know, because these things aren't really rules because they weren't laws. There was no law that said there had to be a cash option in your 401k. They just all had one. Now they don't. Now your money's tied up in there and there's no more cash option. You want to be in cash, but yet you can't be. And your financial liar and your HR person says there's no such thing as a risk-free investment and you don't want your money in cash anyway. It needs to be paying you some type of a return. And they don't know what you want. And now your money's stuck there. And you say, I've had enough of this. I just want my money. And they say, well, as long as you have a job here, you can't take it out. You can't roll it. You can't even pay a penalty and get your money. Your money's tied up. So the the simple answer is how do you, you know, what do you do about your financial advisor that's connected to your 401k plan is nothing because they don't really have much of a of an in, input or a say so anyway. And the options in these things are just limited. And it, this is why if I was going if I had this place where I was getting a dollar for dollar match on a 401k and I got a new job opportunity, one of the first things I would be doing is using that opportunity to roll that money out of that 401k into a IRA. And if it was a conventional 401k, I'm going to go with a conventional IRA. If it was a Roth 401k, which would be far superior, I'm going to go into a Roth IRA, where I'm going to take full control of the money. And some companies are so kind and benevolent to their employees, they say, you know what, we have a great option when you come here. You know how you usually have to leave your old 401k plan behind or roll it over or do something like that with it? We have an option where you can roll your old 401k into our new 401k. No, thank you. All that does is beef up the money under their management, and that's why they want it there. So I would tell you 401s are what they are. They're an easy brainless way to invest and if you do things brainlessly you often get hurt so if you're going to use it know why you're using it and i will tell you this if your company has a 401k plan and they do not match your contributions in any way shape or form don't use it open a roth ira and control your own investments if you actually look at the 401k and go i actually like i would pick these three funds that are in there great put them in a roth ira and invest in it that way And I'll tell you why. Because they'll always be available to you. And that some clown in a suit and tie a thousand miles away won't change it because some lobbyist pressured some congressman to rub some elbows and say, hey, let's get rid of all the cash options and force all of this money into government debt. Because that's what's happened very silently over the last 10 years. That's exactly what's happened. Billions of dollars, probably a trillion plus dollars, has poured into U.S. government bonds and municipal bonds that otherwise would be largely insolvent by now because people in a captive place of a 401k don't have any other place to put their money. And that's the only place they can put it. So instead of it being a money market fund holding 60-day paper in the T-bill market as part of it, 
It's a fund now that's holding long-term U.S. Treasuries and, and, and highly valuable, or, you know, highly selected municipal bonds. That's what's in these things. And that's how they, they just funneled your money in there. If you want your money in there, no problem. But it shouldn't be funneled. Right? So 401ks, the piece of paper tells you all your options and that's it. The manager don't mean nothing and the rules change. And it's very publicly displayed money to bureaucrats who all want their fingers in the kitty. Think very hard before you decide this is the place to make all your investments. Anyway, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. My question is about shotgun shells, uh, what to get and how many. Uh, I live up in central Tennessee. Uh, we've got a lot of game as far as turkeys and quite a few deer and, and uh, also other game birds like doves. Uh, supposedly some quail, but I haven't really seen them. Um, and I just recently got a shotgun, uh, Mossberg 600AT, and just kind of wondering what all to, to hand on, have on hand. You know, I've gotten some uh, seven and a half, gotten some buckshot, even picked up one little box of slugs in case of problems, as it were. And I'm just uh, I'd see what your feedback was, what uh, what all you suggest having on hand. Thanks. You yeah, have a great day. Well, I mean, the first thing I'm going to recommend is I did an episode a while back um, that was all about shotguns, and a ton of the information was um, about the ammo itself and different shot sizes and things like that. And I, I think that it would be probably a really good episode for you to listen to. Now, it's a while back. Um, it is... It was, I think, episode 550-ish, 551, something like that. I'll, I'll look it up, and uh, I'll put that uh, that link in the show notes for you so you can go listen to that. And I think that'll help you. And it talks a lot about shock and actions and things like that. But you can focus on the ammo part of it uh, if that's more what you're looking for. Um, you know, when you're talking about seven and a halfs and things like that, seven and a half is kind of universal upland game bird hunting. So you're looking at stuff for like pheasant and uh, squirrel and rabbit. I usually drop the number six for squirrel and rabbit, but seven and a half will certainly work. You look at eight, you're looking at birdshot, you're looking at quail and doves. I even, I like to actually shoot nines at doves. It's more than enough in a 12 gauge anyway to uh, bring them down. You got a lot more dense patterns. Uh, and doves are fairly fast movers that kind of mock us as they, uh, they cruise by at 65 and, and we, uh, maybe clip a tail feather. And, you know, there's, uh, there's probably not a bird with a more shots to bird, uh, dropped, uh, out there than, 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 than doves. Maybe woodcocks because those guys are pretty sneaky little guys too. Uh, but not a lot of people hunt those anymore. So that type of stuff is really in the neighborhood of the, the, the small game world. When you look at turkeys, you know, a lot of guys are shooting fours. A lot of guys are dropping even down to BBs for turkeys. I'd say fours and twos. Uh, it, you can't. You know, if you're going to look at ducks at all, it's hard to be, you know, a good high brass, uh, number six shot, uh, for ducks. It's really a great duck round. Uh, some people drop the fours on ducks, but I, I've had good luck with sixes. Uh, copper plated shot, if you're allowed to use lead, uh, shot wherever you're hunting ducks. If not, then some of the new, uh, like tungsten shots and things like that, number six are, are plenty of killing on ducks. Um, I would say, though, that if this gun is going to have a potential to be used as a self-defense tool and a survival weapon at some point or a, a get-out-of-dodge get, get weapon or something like that, um, it does make sense to have a fairly good stockpile of buck. Uh, and I would say with a 12-gauge, it's hard to be just good old-fashioned double-O buck. Uh, and it's pretty affordable stuff to put away 100 or 200 rounds of. And I would say the same with good old-fashioned foster slugs. Um 
I mean, those two have a lot of versatility with taking big game and using for self-defense. And I think when people only have like a box around or something like that, if, and they say, well, if anything ever happens, then it'll be there. Well, if anything ever happens, uh, and it's a bad thing, you might need more in a box. You, you might start to value, the, even if it's just taking big game for, for something to eat, you might start valuing those five rounds of foster slugs very, very highly. Um, so I would store at least a hundred rounds of foster slugs and at least 200 rounds of double O buck. And then I would, you know, kind of kid out your, your shot sizes based on your, your, you know, average use per year. And I would have at least two to three years, uh, what your average use is. If you're not a hunter and you just want it there, then, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like seven and a half. So I'm probably going to store a couple hundred, hundred rounds of, uh, either eights or nines. I'm going to probably score a couple hundred rounds of. Um, six shot, I'm going to probably store about a hundred rounds and then either twos or fours or BBs or something like that for your upland game birds. I'm going to store somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to a hundred rounds. And that's kind of going to kind of be my minimum, uh, there. And we actually store more and not so much of the, the BBs and twos and stuff like that because I don't use those and I don't do a lot of turkey hunting. And if I had to, uh, feed myself in this general area, turkey is probably not what I'm going to be doing it with. Um, and I, have a tendency that I would probably in that situation start taking headshots with a 22 um, because it's more efficient uh, than that. And if I'm in that place where I'm trying to feed myself, I'm not really worried about game laws, and it would be legal in Texas anyway. So, um, But I really recommend you listen to episode 551 all about shotguns to get a real understanding of the different shot sizes, uses, patterning, and things like that. But those are my basic recommendations for shotgun ammunition storage. And again, I consider those minimums. Um, I don't think it would hurt anybody uh, out there to have, you know, four or five hundred rounds of double O buck and a couple three hundred rounds of uh, of slugs. And that's something you can do at a box at a time. They're they're generally pretty affordable, and it, that's kind of like a copy canning thing. When you go to the store and you're going to buy a box of double O buck, buy two. I mean, the stuff lasts forever. So those are my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is uh, Country Vader in Tennessee. Um, I had a question that's uh, coming off the silver. Um, presentation you did or talk you did and uh, it's really around the safe more and, and protecting them um, I've been looking at a safe for a while and I'm honestly looking at above ground gun safe um, uh, with a fire rating and my question really is centered around and it is the only place to put it honestly it is into my garage and I'm concerned about putting it in my garage or every time I open my garage door, people are going to see that I have a safe in that. Uh, when I talked to the uh, actual safe store about it, they said actually as a deterrent um, to thieves and people because um, they're going to move on to a softer target effectively. Um, but I wasn't really buying that um, 100%. I could see an angle on it, but on the other side, I'm like I'm advertising. I have something precious in a safe. Um, so I want to get your thoughts around that. Uh, maybe it's a Joe Nobody question about uh, protecting your wealth and, or advertising, you know, I have sensitive things. All right, thanks for all you do, man. Bye. Well, it sounds to me like selling a safe is more important to somebody than uh, advising his customer accurately uh, and, and doing a good job for them because 
having a safe on display in your garage and every time you hit the door opener or whatever, and if you're like me, when you're working in a garage, you leave the door open while you're in there so it's not like a thousand degrees, at least in the summertime, um, it's not a good idea. It, it's not just that it advertises that you have a safe in there. It advertises that you're a person of means. You have stuff, not just in the safe. Right. If I'm a burglar, even if I'm like a kind of guy that's like, I'm not going to hit that safe. If I see you with a safe in your garage, I'm thinking he probably has good stuff in his house, too. Right. So it's a bad, bad idea. Um, if you're going to have guns and things like that, then having a gun safe is a good idea. And then storing some silver in there with it, it's not a bad idea, especially a fire rated one. So I have a solution. Build a cabinet that the safe goes into that looks like just a tool shed cabinet. So you have to open that door before you get to the, the the safe door and then put just a you know a simple padlock on the cabinet door so it looks like it's not really worth messing with um, or maybe even lock it and don't make it obvious that it's locked so maybe it's a it's like a door that locks or what have you so it, it's less because even like a displayed lock is like oh there might be something good in there so that would be one way you could do this if that's what you, if that's the only space you have and it's the only way that you can do it and put that safe in there, I can understand. But that's what I would do. I would camouflage the safe. And I would get it done. And I would have the safe company come, and I would have them bring the safe in in a box. I would close the door, and I would I would have the cabinetry ready to go, and I would at least throw a big piece of plywood in front of it. I would never let anybody know it was there. And I'd keep the door down until you got the, 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 the false cabinet built around it. If you can build the cabinet in advance, have it delivered, shoved in, and close the door, that would be even better. So if I had to do it that way, that's what I would do. If the primary purpose of this safe, though, is to hold small th items like silver and cash and certain other small things, again, I really encourage you to explore the option of an in-floor safe that's cored out of the concrete and put into the floor and then has a locking faceplate. You can easily hide that. You can make it look like a drain pan or something. Even if they find it, they ain't getting into it. It's certainly not as highly visible as an above-ground safe, a big gun safe is. So I would do one of the two things. I would either switch your modus operandi and go to an in-floor safe, and I would be okay with that in a garage. I really would. Um, or if you're going to do a stand-up safe, build a false cabinet, put the safe in the false cabinet. Um, a deterrent... I almost tell you this, find another safe company to buy from because these jackasses, I'm sorry, I was trying not to snap, this jackass doesn't deserve your business. Uh, he should be lined up with the people I talked about earlier and hit with that frozen, half-frozen large salmon or tuna or something like that. What an asshole. That is a person clearly, clearly putting their desire to close a deal before their customer's needs. That person does not deserve your freaking business. And I'd like you to do me a favor. I would like you to just maybe cut out a little segment of this freaking podcast and email that asshole or call him on the phone and play it for him over the phone and say, you know what, I've come up with another solution, but I want you to know I'm not going to give you my freaking business because you don't deserve it, and here's a guy that thinks so. Because if you are listening to this, you jackass, you're a jackass. And I'll tell you what, this, this customer of yours should tell any person ever looking for a safe, do not deal with this jackass. And if you go work for another company, that should be a detriment to that company. No one should ever buy from you, you freaking jerk. You're a complete jackass. Seriously. Sorry, guys. Anyway, 
Let's go back to taking another call and see if I can lower my blood pressure. Hi, Jack. It's Brian from Maryland. My question is about planting a small garden used specifically for chicken feed crops. I wanted to see what you would suggest planting and if you think it's too late in the year to plant them for Zone 6A. Thank you very much. No, it's not too late. I mean, it's probably just about time for you guys to plant up there. Um, what I would think about maybe would be, how about this for a mixture? So get some mammoth sunflower and some, some sort of a large amaranth species and plant them alternated about a foot apart. So I'm assuming you're going to do a little square garden of some kind here. So basically do the square foot method, but use the grid points. So an amaranth, a sunflower, an amaranth, a sunflower, an amaranth. So you get to one end of one, and then wherever you started on the top, if you started with a sunflower, go to an amaranth, a sunflower, an amaranth, a sunflower, and keep just keep them all staggered out. Because that will make a nice, it'll be pretty too. It'll look cool. Uh, especially if you t get something like orange giant or golden giant amaranth when you do this. Big, tall, I mean, it'll be almost as tall as or taller than the sunflowers. So now you've got a couple different yields there. One, the chickens will love the amaranth leaves, and you can even be pulling some of the side shoots of leaves off and giving them to the chickens while the garden's growing. And when the sunflowers are mature, all you have to do is basically cut the head off the sunflower, throw them the whole head. Those are some pretty big heads. If you have a small flock, maybe you break the head in half. Maybe you go ahead and dry them out before you give them to them. And a really big head, you might even break into quarters. So then they have sunflower uh, seeds and they have amaranth leaf, uh, which is great for them, and they will tear it up. Of course, when the amaranth matures uh, and it begins to dry out, you simply cut the heads off and you throw them the heads of amaranth. They'll eat the grain right off of it. You don't have to do any work. So that gives us like these two large plants. Now, at the end of the cycle, we can take the stalks of amaranth, cut them to the ground, throw them in there, and let the chickens peel all the leaves off of them. Uh, the sunflower leaves they won't touch. The only thing growing in the chicken run right now is sun, you know, like volunteer sunflowers. They don't have any real interest in the sunflower plant, but they will eat the, they'll tear the leaves off of the amaranth stalks for you. So then maybe you could, you know, do something like if you have a small chipper shredder at the end of the season, throw all those stalks in there and make mulch. Put that, and, and you could use that mulch in your chicken run and let them scratch it up and manure it for you, or you could just use it straight on the garden. So that would take the vertical space. Now let's take the floor space up, so to speak, so we don't have any weeds to worry about. For Even though our chickens would probably eat lots of weeds, they won't necessarily appreciate them all. We're trying to boost the nutrition into the chicken. So I might make up a seed mix very similar to what's on my wood core beds with the, the absence of daikon. They're not real, not real, real fond of daikon, uh, you know. But you know what they do like? They like turnips. Uh, they both like the tops and the balls of turnips. Uh, you can cut, slice the turnips and throw them in there. They'll eat those, and they'll certainly eat the turnip greens. So maybe I'd make up a seed mixture of turnips to, to take the place of the daikon, buckwheat, and, and cowpea. And in your climate, maybe you use a, more of a, of a, a northern pea, because you can probably even grow like regular peas up there. But if cowpea will work for you, and I, I think it will, it's a pretty quick-growing plant, and you have plenty of, plenty of a hot season left ahead of you. So I'd probably just use what I've been using, which is buckwheat and cow, red cowpea, uh, along with uh, millet and turnips. And I would that I would make into a big seed mixture, and I would just freaking like salt and pepper the whole floor of the garden You know, and, and you might even wait till your amaranth and, uh, your amaranth and your, 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 uh, sunflowers have emerged. Not maybe gotten big, but they've just started to emerge. So you know where they are and you know you've gotten good germination on them because the, the buckwheat's going to go fast. 
right? So you might give it four or five days because that'll usually get your amaranth and your your uh, sunflower up. And salt and pepper the ground with that stuff. Use a little bit of an inoculant for your cow peas, some sort of a pea and vetch inoculant, uh, slurry method with that, and just pepper the ground with it. Don't mix your fine seeds in with the slurry. What I mean by slurry is we did this, and there's there's video of the workshop. You know, you put your cow pea, and if it comes pre-mixed with the buckwheat, if you buy it that way, just go ahead and throw the buckwheat in there because it's a big seed. You pour a little bit of inoculant in there, and you make it wet, and you rub it around. Throw that down, then go back over it with your turnip seed and your, your millet seed, and throw a ton of millet in there. I mean, just like you're doing grass seed. And then put a thin layer of compost over that and water it good. And from the time you put seed in it until you get everything really up, water it at least daily, just until you get it up. Then you're going to have this carpet under, and the, the amaranth and the sunflower are going to go like gangbusters because they're going to race that buckwheat to the light, and they're going to go much faster. And when they get up over that, then you've got a nice little bit of shade for all of your stuff that's down in the garden, you know, all that stuff that's growing low, and it'll do just fine down there. You may go in and prune out, like, let's, because sunflowers get those big leaves, maybe prune out the leaves on your sunflowers once they start to really get big, like, the, like two feet up, and then leave the rest of the leaves. If, if it needs some sun down in there, you'll have no weeds. The chickens will love the buckwheat, both the, they'll eat the leaves and they'll eat the grain. The buckwheat is not good to give them in the height of summer because if they eat too much buckwheat, they can become somewhat photosensitive and actually get sunburned. Um, that's one detriment with buckwheat. But if you're eating a lot of other things, a little bit's not going to hurt them. So you can pull a couple stalks here and there because it's going to be thick and you might want to thin it out and go ahead and give them that as it's growing. But at the end of the season, you ain't worried about photosensitivity because you don't have that intense sun anymore. So then you could just let your chickens into the garden and let them take it down for you. Or you could go ahead and harvest it and give it to them as you choose. That would be one way I would do a chicken garden. Uh, and I could probably come up with 10 different chicken gardens. That's just the one that sprung to mind probably because I'm working with a lot of those plants right now. Uh, definitely you could pull those turnips up and uh, slice them for your chickens and they'll eat those. You might want to even leave some of them in the ground though over the winter. Uh, they'll reduce your irrigation requirements as they rot in the ground and build up organic matter for you in your second year where you could just do the whole process all over again. The other thing that would make this a good garden for chickens is a sustainability standpoint. Um, you could probably take the seed off, you know, one amaranth head and have plenty for replanting. You could take, you know, the seed, you could take enough seed out of one sunflower head. You might want to take a couple different plants to keep some genetic diversity in there, but that would be plenty. You could take some millet seed heads and you could take some um, <clears throat> seed heads off your buckwheat and have plenty for planting next year. Just a thought. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Dan from Arizona. Easy Aries on the forum. I have a question about using shredded office paper for mulching material. Uh, we go through a lot of it at work, and it's not sensitive documents. Most of it only has a couple lines of two or print on it. Um, so I have access to a lot of it for, for my use. Anyway, uh, we, my wife and I are just moving on to our three-acre property. So I have a lot of mulching to do, and I'm looking for any cheap and free materials uh, that I can get. Anyway, I'd love to hear your uh, comments on that, if it's possible. And um, thanks very much for everything you do. Bye-bye. Well, I'm not real worried about the inks. Most of those are going to be soy-based in a, a printer environment like that. And like you said, there's not that much on them. And so I'm not really concerned with toxicity at all, but I don't think it would make a good mulch. 
Um, shredded paper tends to blow away really good, and uh, it turns into a matted kind of goopy mess when it's wet. So when it's dry, it blows away, and when it's wet, it kind of becomes this this like oozing pulp, like goes reverts to the state that it was before they turned it into paper. That said, it is quite useful. Um, maybe if it was used under a mulch layer, it would almost be like a weed blocker if you got enough of it and really you know, almost like using like thick newspaper, but it would need to be thick or it actually can dry soil out if it's not, the paper's not thick enough and then a mulch layer on top of it where it would work really good is for composting. You can either use it directly as a carbon source. Um, and, and mixed with greens and other carbons and you compost the hell out of it and get a ton of co great compost out of it. Or it can go straight in as bedding with worms. And I think that most people today, uh, with the amount of waste most people produce, would be much better off vermicomposting than composting because we don't get enough material to do a proper compost pile. So if you, if you used it for vermicomposting, it would probably be very, very valuable, but I would stay away from using shredded paper as mulch. If anybody has any other uses for this or has successfully used sweat shredded paper or as mulch by treating it a certain way or doing something with it or used it as maybe a fertility uh, holder in some way, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to say not mulch, but yes, compost. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jason in South Coastal Georgia. Jason 389 on the forum. Very quick question for you. Uh, for filtering and purifying water, uh, let's say out of a rain barrel, Would I filter the water and then boil it, or would I boil it and then filter it if I wanted to do both? Thanks for the show. Appreciate it. Looking forward to your answer. Thanks. Um, you know, you're in a situation where you're really concerned with your water if you're doing both, and, and maybe you shouldn't be drinking that water. From a rain barrel, generally speaking, I would just say if you use a good quality filter, you're good to go. Um, but if you wanted to boil it for whatever reason, I would say filter then boil. And the reason is because you'll get a lot of the stuff that you don't want in the water the hell out of the water before you even bother with the boiling, and you're only then worried about biologics. There are certain toxins that can be in water that, while boiling will kill any biological hazard, and it absolutely will, it's 100% effective at that. It won't remove certain heavy metals and things like that. It'll actually, it will actually increase them. How does that happen? Is it breaking the laws of thermodynamics or something like that? No. It's just it, it, when, they, when you boil the water, a lot of these, certain, these heavy metals and stuff like that, they don't boil off. So since you reduce the water volume, you actually increase the concentration. Fluoride is a mineral that does exactly that. You can't boil fluoride out of water. If you took a gallon of water and boiled the shit out of it for you know half an hour and boiled it down to a half a gallon, you would double the fluoride. That's how that works. So um, just logistically... I would say filter, then boil. In the end, it's probably not really going to matter, but logistically it makes sense to get all of the, because uh, if there's sand or something in there or detritus of some sort, you know, then you're just cooking sticks and, and gravel and pieces of dirt, uh, and you'd be better off not to do that and then, you know, try to run it through the filter. Um, also, uh, you know, I would be concerned with putting, like, really hot water into my filter. I might worry about it causing some sort of damage. So then I would have to boil the water, wait for it to cool mostly, and then put it in the filter, where if I filter it, as soon as it comes out of the filter, I could boil it. But really think long and hard about why you're, you're, you're doing both methods to a water source. And if you are, and there's a justification for it, can you find a better source? Uh, because if you had uh, a roof 
and you were catching rainwater off of a roof, and you were keeping it in something that wasn't, you know, letting the water turn green or something like that, and ran it through a Berkey, I'd drink it. I'd drink it all day long. I wouldn't even worry about boiling it. But um, if you want to do both, boiling second. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I'm a new dad to a one-month-old son. What's the best long-term investment plan that I can start for his future? Thank you. Darius from, from Hamilton, New Jersey. A couple things you could do that are really easy is you could buy him a couple ounces of silver a month and keep it in a, a safe or a, a safe deposit box or something like that for him in the future because that's something that... You know, when he gets old enough and you hand it over to him, he's a lot less likely to go party with and a lot more likely to hold on to long-term and understand the value in it. Another thing that, you know, I mean, I get down on bonds sometimes because of people being forced into them. But a U.S. savings bond is not a bad investment in of itself. And people say, well, what if the dollar fails? Well, then, you know, cash is worthless too. So saving money versus saving bonds, it's, it's, you know, you get at least an interest rate on it. So, you know, you could buy them a bond every month. And those two things make a nice little portfolio for someone to get started with. And you could save some cash for them. And, and I would, you know, let me tell you what you don't do. 529A plan. Well, that's for college. And that makes the money tax deferred and there's no taxes on it. And you know what? You know, two year olds, even if they make a little bit of money, they don't pay any tax anyway. They just don't. I mean, the amount of money in an investment for a child for a very long period of time is going to be such that their income is so low that they don't have any tax consequences. They're going to have to, you know, make six grand a year in, in profit before they're going to be taxed at any real meaningful level. So there's no advantage to that. Plus, that money's now squirreled away in a way that it can only be used for college. And you might be a very proud new father. And you might be thinking, my little child is going to grow up and one day walk across the high school stage and, Move his tassel from one side to the other and then go off to college. And you don't know that. You don't know that. And I don't care how much you think it's the right thing, it might not be the right thing. So why should their money be held in a vehicle that requires that they go to school to get it? Or determines what type of school that they might want to pursue? You know, maybe your kid will grow up and want to take up a trade and that trade will be something that that money won't be approved for. You know, and you, well, what's he going to be? You know, a beekeeper or something? How about a helicopter pilot? My son decided he didn't want to do it, so it ended up being a moot point, but considered going to flight school. And as soon as he started looking at it, he realized that if you wanted to get the most out of flight school, learn to fly helicopters, not fixed-wing pilots. There was a lot less helicopter pilots out there. It was a much better career path. And you might be doing crap for the first five to ten years, but after you had that kind of experience behind you, there's a really good living to be made, you know, with people flying things like life flight helicopters and things like that. Um, and so he considered going to, to helicopter school. Well, you'd think that, you know, 529 would allow you, nope. Can't use it. Doesn't happen. You could go take aviation in college, but that's not what he wanted to study. Not was, you know, he wanted to actually study how to fly helicopters. So he, he would have to pay a penalty to get his own money. So I really am not a fan of locking up money with specific requirements for children other than age-based. If you want to put a trust fund together and say, well, you can have 10% of the money when you turn 21 and the rest of the money when you turn 25, I think that makes a lot of sense because should you pass away or something like that, um, you know, a 21-year-old that gets a sizable chunk of money will generally find a way to eliminate it very quickly and very stupidly. Um, you know, and if you're around and they want to do something that makes sense as the trustee, you could then make, you, know, you could write the trust with an exception to be made by the trustee. 
Uh, so that you could then say as the, it's not the trustee, I guess the child would be the trustee, uh, but as the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Don't worry about it. The guy, administrator or the overseer or whatever, there's a right word for it. It doesn't matter. But as the person that basically is in control of the, of the trust, you could say, I will make, you can set it up so you can make an allowance for withdrawal. You can say, I approve this by approval only up until a certain age where it all transfers. Those are very, very sensible ways to hold larger pieces of money for young people so that they don't get a case of the dumbass when they turn 18 and throw a big party and have, you know, their favorite rock band play or something like that and have no more money. Um, but when it comes to small investments, it's hard to beat just a, a squirreled away pile of cash, savings bonds, and a couple ounces of silver a month. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And there's also really nothing wrong with Opening up a bank account for them, generally that's something you wait till they're about five to do, though. Take them to the bank, explain how a bank works, explain how holding money in a savings, uh, safe account, a savings account works, and, and have them put some money there. And explain that we don't put all our, all our ducks in, in one, or all our eggs in one basket. Even though the smiling little man at the bank says, you should put all your money here and get interest so your money can work for you. Since he's only given us a third of 1%, we have this other investment. I think that's a great way, and I think as your child, and that's stuff you can do now, you know, putting away these things, but as your child gets older, start to explain investing at, at a survival podcast level to them uh, pretty early on. You know, this is a tool, and this is going to last forever, and one day I'm going to give it to you. And as you get older, we'll start buying you your own tools uh, or, or guns. And, I mean, you don't buy a gun for a one-year-old. I know some of us do, and it's really an excuse to buy it for ourselves. Uh, but, you know, as they get older and you start teaching them firearm safety and things like that, the same thing can be said about a gun. This, this was your grandfather's gun, and one day I'll hand it down to you. These are investments, too. And I think it's very important as parents that we start broadening our children's definition of investment as early as possible and understand that an investment is something that lasts and continues to provide for you in the future. That's what an investment is. It doesn't even have to have a gain, right? A screwdriver might be worth a little bit more money in the future than today, but that's not why we have a screwdriver. We have a screwdriver so we can turn screws. But if we buy a high-quality screwdriver that will last for generations, it will continue to turn screws for us in the future. That makes it an investment. As long as we don't lose it, that's why we should take care of it. And I think that that's something deeply missing in the hearts of Americans when it comes to investments. We want somebody else to take care of it, right? But you're, you know, when you buy something like a collectible firearm, you clean it, you take care of it. And we need to restore that to America that we think of all of our investments that way, including our, our monetary investments, that I'm going to take care of it. I'm not going to just have a guy do it because the guy doesn't give a shit about you. He says he does, right? He plays golf with you once a year or whatever, doesn't really care. Now, maybe you have a good friend that really cares about you that's a financial advisor. But if you have a financial advisor you talk to twice a year, by the way, the one that I fired just called me, um, and I, I don't know if I'll return his call or not. depends on what he wants. Um, <laughs> uh, and I mean just called me when I started this. Then, then they don't care about you. They really don't. They care about you as a number in their account file because they don't have time to care about. You know, if they're successful and they have a 1,000 clients, they don't have time to care about every one of them, not at the level you care about you. Because I care about you, and I don't care about you as much as I care about myself. I know that sounds selfish, but it's true. Right? I'm going to go out and work in my backyard today. I'm not coming to your house to do it. Why? My backyard's more important to me than your backyard. And guess what? Your backyard's more important to you than my backyard. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that like, if we really know each other, I might not come help you, or you might not come help me. It just means that when the priority gets laid down, I'm going to look after my family and my home first. And I'm going to take care of it. 
And I think that that's something we need to be teaching our children about their investments. It's not just something you just put away and let work for you in the words of the smiling banker when it works for you at one third of 1% today. Okay. It's something you take care of. You pay attention to. You watch it. If it's not performing right, you change it and you hold on to it and you use it in the future. And it can be something that pays a dividend in, in money or it can be something that pays a dividend in action. A screwdriver, a hammer, a wrench, a jack that lasts quality. A garden hose. Use it every day to water the garden, which provides us with food. Okay. Or it can be something that pays a dividend long term. We buy it today for X, we sell it tomorrow for Y, and we can use that money for our future goals. And that's the well-rounded way of looking at investing. So I think that maybe putting some things into your child's investment portfolio that are more along the lines of things that they'll use one day that'll last a lifetime. And as they get older, explaining that this is as much a part of the, what we've been putting back for you and investing for you as this silver coin and as this bank account. And you might think that's a lot to do for a kid, but you only have to do a little bit every month. Be surprised how much would be done by the time they have their fifth birthday, which is probably about the time to start having little bits of conversations like with us with them. Anyway, congratulations on the new baby, and I think you're going to be a tremendous parent. The fact that you're thinking this way when they're one month old uh, gives them a lot to be grateful for in the future. Let's take another call. Jack, this is Floyd from Texas. I have a question uh, about shredding a field or bush hogging a field. I have a large field, about 40 acres, and it's basically grown up. It has all, it's all uh, went to weeds, and I finally got a shredder. I also make my own compost, so this is the question. Should I bush hog the field and leave the the fodder on the field, or should I try to bale this, these weeds and bring them back up and use them for compost? It would, I think it would really make some good compost, but uh, it would also add nutrients to the field. The field is about 40 acres. Uh, weeds are probably about uh, a little more than knee high. So I appreciate your input. Thanks. Bye. Well, the problem you might run into that is logistics. I mean, if you cut 40 acres of weeds and try to bale it all up, you're going to have a, uh, a pretty hard time composting that much material. Um, but there's some ways we could do this. One is we could just brush hog the hell out of it and let it go to the ground and let nature take it from there. And it probably will do a lot of it. But you're also going to reseed the hell out of a lot of these weeds. Now, if your weeds haven't really gone to seed yet this year, this is an interesting way to break the cycle. If we put that stuff to the ground before it has a chance to go to seed, um, we're not going to have as much regrowth. Now, a lot of them are probably perennial weeds, and they're going to regrow from the, the bottom up. Um, but you got to think, what are you going to do with this when it's done? What do you want this to become? Uh, an easy thing to do would be graze it. If you could put a grazer in there that would take it down for you, you'd be in really good shape. Um, there is another option, uh, one that would probably be much better suited if you had a small front-end loader or something to do this, and that's brush hog it and then pile it up in piles and maybe bring in a carbon source like some wood chips and mix it with your front-end loader and make a bunch of compost piles all out there, and then after it's done composting, spread it. That's going to be much more feasible than bringing it in. Now, there's another way to do composting that 
I don't know how well this would work here, and I really don't completely understand the way they're, they're doing it yet myself. But it's, it's a flat, large composting process. And it's what, uh, the company up the road does for me. Silver Creek Materials, they basically have an area that's about the size of two football fields. So you're looking at about two acres. And they make their wood chips and all their, their brush and everything, and they mix it all together, and they spread it out about a foot deep. That big. And it composts like that. You know, and then they, they, they and they keep it wet. And they use to keep it wet like recycled beer and soda and sports drinks. They're uh, basically like they have some kind of certification for uh, recycling all the packaging and everything. So they get these huge cases of expired beer, uh, which there's really nothing wrong with. But I guess no, they're not allowed, nobody's allowed to sell it anymore because it's expired. And they basically crush all the beer out of it into a tank. And they keep keep it moist with beer and old Powerade and stuff like that. Now, I don't use this compost because I have no idea what the source of a lot of this stuff is. But the process works, and it's pretty good-looking compost. So it's possible that you could put it to the ground and maybe build it up and then compost it in place. But I, I don't know. 40 acres is an awful lot. Um, it's a lot more about what do you plan on doing with this property? What are you going to do with it? Because if you just compost 40 acres and that's all you do with it, it's just going to come back to weeds even better than before. Um, so it's more about what are you going to do next? And that's how you have to think about this and what makes the most sense for you. Um, I, you know, for composting 40 acres of foot tall weeds, Oh my, I, I think that's logistically almost impossible, but maybe you could work on it like an acre at a time the way I'm talking about. I, I don't know. Pretty much I would brush hog it down. Um, one thing you gotta be careful of right now though, we're about to go into the dry hot part of summer. If you brush hog all of this now, um, you may end up with a pretty dry barren field and you could lose a lot of your topsoil. So you got to be careful, and this might be something to really think about. So um, I would be much more comfortable putting grazers on it if you can of some sort. Um, it's probably not the best graze in the world, but they'll handle it. They'll take care of it, and if you put cattle on it, they'll trample it and do a lot to improve it. you got to think more right now. What do I want this to be? You know, Do you want, do you want it to be a 40-acre wheat field, or do you want it to be 40 acres of cell grazing paddocks and food forest that's really the important thing and not worrying so much about composting and worrying more about shaping the land and putting it into the state that you want it in but i just thought those were some interesting may methods that may work on a slightly smaller scale for making large amounts of compost for people to put things into these remote piles like so maybe every half acre has a big pile and we just compost it straight away right there And there's probably, when you brush hog this, a lot of carbon in there. Because you got a lot of woody stems and fibers and things like this. And if you go through and brush hog the shit out of it and push it into a pile, it'll pretty much start the composting process all by itself. And if you go out there about four days later with some sort of small bucket loader, like, you know, like a, like a little Kubota tractor or something, and, and turn it with that, it, you, it'll be steaming like crazy and you'll put it to compost pretty quick. And it might be an interesting idea. I don't know if I'd try it with 40 acres. But it might be something to test on an acre and see how much compost you get and can you spread it then across that acre and can you accelerate the natural process and what are the results? Planned, I, I think it's an awful lot of logistical headache to do on 40 acres, uh, especially without testing it first. So uh, let us give us a progress report on that one. Uh, let's take another call. 
Hi, Jack. Melissa here from Illinois. Love the show. I had a question about autumn olives. My husband and I bought a bunch of trees and shrubs from Rain Tree Nursery, and we bought autumn olives because of the lycopene content and, and the things you said about it on, the sh- on one of the shows. And we expected it to just kind of take off right away, but it's, one of them are, is all but has lost all of its leaves, and it looks like a stick now, and the other two just haven't seemed to get, have gotten any bigger. Um, I did call Rain Tree and ask if they had any advice, and, and I told them what I was doing, and they said, no, they're, you're doing everything everything you can. So, and, they, and they said if they don't come back, then next year they would replace them for free, but they're out this year. But I didn't know if there are any tips or tricks that, that you would have or that maybe someone on the expert panel might have. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. Well, autumn olive is a really hardy nitrogen-fixing plant that's so hardy that it can become invasive and reproduce on its own in the wild, so to speak, and kind of run amok. And a lot of highway departments have found that out by planting it for erosion control and for repairing soils, uh, and it, it kind of goes crazy. The thing is, it's not really a problem because it's inedible. It fixes nitrogen. Uh, if you let forest succession happen, it's not going to last in the long term. It's a support species. Uh, so only when people are trying to make things look like a golf course does this become an issue. That said, there's, uh, there's one thing Autumn Olive really doesn't like, alkaline soil. So I would maybe even run out, and a lot of the soil tests kits you can buy at Home Depot and Lowe's, when it, you, the NPK ratios and things like that are pretty worthless. Um, they don't actually give you an accurate picture, but the pH test is actually usually pretty pretty accurate. So you could either have the test done by a, a local extension office or something like that. But I'm gonna bet you've got alkaline soil. You know, you're probably sitting in the neighborhood of seven two, seven four, seven six, something like that. And if you've got that. Autumn olive can handle acidic soils down into the 4.8 range, but doesn't really like it when the pH gets much over 6.5. So a little, if we test that soil and it's alkaline, uh, some soil amendment to, to, to raise the pH in the soil just where they are might turn them straight around. And uh, we can do that just by adding some sulfur. Uh, yeah, we can put a pine tree there, start throwing some pine needles on the ground around them. But if we want to just, uh, if we test and we get an alkaline pH, something seven or higher, uh, seven's neutral. But if we're that high neutral, uh, autumn olive might even start to be a little lax at that. Uh, if we get, especially with like a seven, two, seven, four soil pH. Yeah. Yeah. Flip that, flip that pH on its head and give it a little bit of, um, uh, sulfur or use an organic fertilizer specifically for blueberries or azaleas because that's going to start lowering your pH as well and keep an eye on it. That would be one thing I would check. The other thing I would check is the plant is the plant planted too deep. If the plant's planted too deep, you just might have to raise it up a little bit. So, yeah, all the roots should be below the ground, but if it's, you know, if you've gone way up the trunk, uh, sometimes trees have a real, trees, bushes, vines all have a real problem with being planted too deep. Uh, another thing you might look at is did you dump a bunch of fertilizer in the hole? Um, if you've over fertilized the nitrogen fixer, especially like autumn olive, and you've put too much there, it can have an adverse effect on its ability to do its own nitrogen fixing, and it really needs the ability to do that. Doesn't mean that there's nitrogen in the soil that's bad, but if you put like, you know, a big pile of nitrogen-rich fertilizer, like something like 
blood meal, which I do a lot of with vegetable gardening, uh, you can overdo that. So that could be the case, but I doubt that's the case. Um, the other thing is, did you plant it in like pure compost? Well, so a lot of times people think they're doing plants a favor. They dig a hole and they fill the hole with pure compost. Well, compost is great at holding moisture in if it's covered with something else. It dries out really quick. And if you created this little nest for the tree and it's all nice and soft and the, the, the walls of the hole are hard soil and the tree's just kind of staying in its little happy zone down there, every time that compost dries out, it's not being able to draw much moisture from around it. If that's the case, it's probably not worth digging the tree up. As long as the tree's not too deep, it would be worth putting a layer of soil over top of the compost to help hold the moisture in and making sure it's getting enough moisture. But basically, when you plant trees, a little bit of compost in the hole is fine, but you should plant it mostly back into the same soil that it's going to be growing in. Those are the, the things I can suggest to check. If anybody's had any problems with autumn olive, which is pretty rare, and rectified them, uh, tune in today, or ch chime in today in today's show notes. With that, we've come to the end of another uh, listener call-in show. I think this was a great one with a lot of diversity and variety in calls. Sometimes people say there's too many... Uh, You know, permaculture-style questions on the call-in shows. We'll pick the phone up, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Uh, make your calls, and we'll try to get your calls on the air. Remember, call from a quiet area. A couple of little announcements here at the end. Remember, the voting on the naughty list for walkingtofreedom.com is over. We're now solidifying the final results and how we're going to put them out as we kick that form into overdrive and start giving all the other states their own board. Uh, that would be great if you guys could come by and vote in that. Um, I do have a problem there. Maybe an SMS wizard can help me out. Um, we're running, I think, the latest version of Simple Machines Forums. There used to be a real easy place to email all the members in a simple machine forum but right now it's just vanished i can't find it i don't know if they've moved it i've been through every menu i'd like to email all the members of the forum and let them know to vote if somebody can help me out with that i'd appreciate it i got another announcement uh start thinking if this is you this would be really great for a young person that wants a future in both agriculture and permaculture and business We are probably going to take on this summer, somewhere around midsummer, after I get back from Montana, because I don't feel comfortable bringing a person that I don't know into the home and then leaving for the two trips I have to make, one to Iowa and one to Montana. So it'll be after Montana um, that we're going to bring in an intern. And this is what this internship will entail. You'll have your own guest room, TV, all that jazz, real bed, what have you, our guest room that we usually give to guests for events. Um, you will work... Uh, on the property with their chickens, our geese, and our agricultural activities, our permacultural activities. Uh, you will also help out as a research assistant for the show. Maybe you'll even do some things like screening calls. You'll establish your own blog to document your, your time, and you will take that with you when you leave. We'll be looking for a minimum commitment of three months and a maximum time you can stay of six so that we can bring other people through for this. I've said this apply, this would be great for young people, but you don't have to be young. Um, it's just that young people usually don't have a lot of the baggage of life already. Um, you will also get business mentorship. Uh, the, the systems on the property are not yet that involved, but you will be a big part of that. One of the exciting things will be all of the projects that we need done. Um, some of them may not seem like direct permaculture projects, like I want to set up an all-grain brewing system. Well, that'll be something you can do. Some of the irrigation systems and ideas that you come up with for the property, basically you'll go out, put together a budget for me, and I'll fund it. 
it will pay a little bit. We're thinking about a stipend of about $100 cash a week plus room and board. Uh, and when I say room and board, basically, uh, you know, there's some stuff for breakfast laying around here and there. Some days I'll cook and you'll be welcome at the table. But basically, we have coffee for breakfast. Lunch, we'll make sure there's stuff to make sandwiches or something like salads and what have you in the refrigerator. But uh, you'll be uh, welcome at the dinner table every night that you want to be there. We just want to know whether you're going to be there or not so we don't cook for you if you're not there. Sometimes we eat early. Sometimes we eat late. Sometimes we go out. You'll be on your own. But there'll be food provided. So there'll be no real expenses while you're here. Um, we're not going to regiment your work time because that's just against the spirit of internship. But we are going to expect that stuff is being done every day. And if you want to take a couple days off, that's fine. And the big thing is you'll be completely in charge of watching over our property when we take vacations or go away for a day or two, uh, which is a big reason we're willing to do this. I think that... This is not a good financial return for me at this point. Maybe it will be in the future as we get a more evolved system, but I think that it allows me some freedom from the property. Uh, and it'll be an, it'll be a great mentorship because it's not just woofing, right? It's a little bit of woofing and a whole lot of business mentorship as well and a whole lot of project-based things. I need some greenhouse, a greenhouse and a screenhouse built off of Texas Preppers plants. I'll just pay for all the material. You take the truck, go get it build it. It'll be cool. It'll be fun. Um, and again, a four to six month internship. Start thinking about whether that's you. More details will come soon. And I really hope that that helps some young people, especially, but anybody that wants to make a life change that has the time to make the commitment to do it. Um, and and it, this would probably be one person I would consider taking a couple. Um, I worry about that because, you know, when a couple gets into an argument and one person leaves, what that type of thing. So I think this would be ideal for one person, but I would consider taking a couple. But I'm not going to double the stipend. You're going to get 100 bucks a week, and that's it. All right, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. i